0: Let's let's do this, the Cult of Hockey podcast by the faithful and for the faithful. I'm David Staples of the Edmonton Journal and I'm here today with Bruce McCurdy. Hey Bruce.
1: Hey David, how are you doing today?
0: Yeah, I'm good. Kids back at school, so I'm glad. Uh, and you're feeling better.
1: I am feeling better. Yeah, it took a few more days, even after I got my test back. But as uh, so the second half of this week's gone, I'm starting to feel myself again. And that's that was a bug that lasted a good week.
0: Did your so, Did your wife's test also come back?
1: She's still waiting.
0: Yeah, that's a, if, if you have symptoms. I guess.
1: Yeah, like no, they, I got. They tell you right away. Yep.
0: If you're yes. non-symptomatic, though, you don't find. I mean, I just obviously, I think the test is negative. If they had a positive test, she would have heard by now. But it's. I think there's inputting like it takes a lot of time to input all that data i understand so it takes i have another friend who's been waiting quite a while uh you know for a test and he didn't have symptoms either so um i just think if you don't have symptoms you're at the bottom of the list for hearing back
1: well they're doing something close to a hundred thousand tests a week at that one site so holy
0: you know
1: she's she's they holy. said a thousand an hour for 12 hours a day and I can tell you, I stood in a nice long lineup that stretched way across the line. you spaced apart, of course, but stretched way across this big field, waiting to get in. And they were going fast, like that, you know. The lineup was moving, but uh, it was there was a lot of people there.
0: So, uh, Bruce, today in our podcast, we're going to talk about a few things. My current preoccupation is who's going to play with Connor McDavid next year, because I think it it may. It may be the number one need. I, I did a poll on that, actually, what the number one need is for the Oilers. And not surprisingly, this is exactly what I was expecting might turn out. Not surprising, there was a three-way tie <laughs> for the lead, which is not wow. a good sign, right? It means Not really, but, no. So the three-way fine. tie was top four D-man, which is really code for a number one D-man, and then a, a, a goalie to compete with Koskinen, and then a winger to play with McDavid. So right across the board, forward, defense, goalie, the fans have identified we have a major need in all areas. The one thing, the third line center, was was had the least support for for being the major
1: major need. In some way you can make a good case for that one too. I mean, there are needs, and and like you say, they are a center, on the wings, on the blue line, and in the net. Other than that, things are fine.
0: Yeah, I didn't mind Shane last year actually, but I just think when you have Shane and Kara on the on your roster. You, That's one too many big, slow guys. Mm -hmm. And if they're going to, you know, Kara's on contract, so if they don't move him, I think if they move Kara, then they might bring back Shea, would be my guess. And that, you know, as a fourth-line centre, he might be fine. I actually think Gaetan Haas is my dark horse, underrated candidate for third-line centre. They could do worse, I think. Like, I liked his play. I think he's a fast, uh, useful player who's responsible defensively and might actually show something in his second year as the third-line center. So <clears throat> I'm not as worried. I, like so. I, I That might be a stretch. Might, a lot of people might think that's just crazy talk. But do you think that? Like, what do you think? Any chance he could be the well, guy?
1: Well, I mean, the order structure under Tippett and really under Holland, just the way the roster is set up, is they have basically two first lines and two fourth lines. So yeah. if they don't have, like, a traditional third line. They're not going to play the traditional third-line role or minutes um, so all of, you know, Haas and Shea and, and Kara and whoever else they wheeled into that, uh, spot were all playing in the bottom, you know, and the bottom six was basically fourth line level in, in many ways. But, uh, Haas, I mean, to me, the most encouraging guys that I think might take a step next year from, from this year are the two Euros, Haas and Negard, that, uh, you know, they were just establishing themselves, really. And you might say, uh, you know, a pessimist might say, well, they didn't come in and make an impact right away, so at best they're going to be, you know, um, uh, complementary players. And that's probably true, but, uh, but uh, I think they can be good complementary players.
0: I thought Nigard actually did make an impact. He, uh, you know, he was, I thought, very responsible defensively. And when he was healthy and going, he was a strong player on the forecheck on the attack. I really liked his game. So we're going to talk about, um, McDavid's line mates, goal the goalie situation. Um, the Oilers weaknesses in procurement in the last decade, we're going to get into a little bit. And we'll also talk about some of these young defensemen making a big name for themselves in the playoffs and whether the Oilers have anyone on the horizon that can provide that same, same lift, uh, to the team, which is absolutely essential. If the Oilers are going to go anywhere, Bruce, like, um, so there are a number of, of major needs here. So I, I dug in, uh, I'm dug in, digging into this thing with McDavid. And I'm starting with the, the proposition, which I'll get you to, to comment on. And my proposition is this. McDavid is an extremely difficult player to play with, to mesh with. And it's not going to be necessarily um, the all-star winger who's going to mesh with McDavid, like a like even a Taylor Hall or a, I would argue Ryan Nugent Hopkins at the end of the year was playing like an all-star winger. McDavid is an interesting player because, A, he's so fast, and B, he absolutely dominates the puck and should dominate the puck. You When he's on the ice, the thing you want to see more than anything else in the world is the puck on his stick, and that shouldn't change. I don't think he should change his game. But, but what he needs then isn't give-and-go players like Yamamoto and Nugent Hopkins to play with him. Players who flourish in that kind of, I give you the puck, I'm going to get open, you give it back to me. That's a mistake. You're wasting the talent of Ryan Nugent Hopkins uh, playing him. And Leon Dreisaitl playing him on, on some level. You're not getting the optimal, the, what you can get out of those give-and-go players, putting them with McDavid. Instead, what he needs are up-and-down wingers. Players... Um, who don't need the puck. One of them, I think, should go hard to the net, be that guy who goes hard to the net and comes back hard on the back check. But the other guy, I think, is a one-time, one-touch time one shooter who gets the puck and shoots it. He doesn't need the puck. He doesn't want the puck. He's a guy like Hoffman in Florida. Going back in the day, like the ultimate player in this category was Mike Bossy. Um hmm. who, who doesn't have the puck on his stick, but suddenly... Puts um, in the net. It's in the net, and Steve Shutt. <laughs> Steve Shutt is another example oh. like this. Because I'm thinking of similar players to McDavid. Is is Guy Lafleur, Mike And I don't really know who Madano's line line mates. I think Gary Letten. Gary
1: Lettinen was a, so was a, a two
0: way two way yeah. winger. Yeah. So I think that's the that's the two way winger could work. Um, you know, a very I don't know Lettinen's game enough though to comment on it. But I know uh, Lafleur's game. Was very much like McDavid's game, built on speed, and you wanted the puck on Lefleur stick. And he played with Steve Shutt, who didn't want the puck at all. He was just there at the net to pop in the goal every single time. You know, Craig Simpson's another player like that who comes to mind. Ryan Smith is the kind of the go hard to the net kind of guy in that in that vein. Um, and Jacques Lemaire was also with uh, Lafleur, and Jacques Lemaire was just a very smart defense, incredible offensive talent, but filled in defensively where he needed to. He was the defensive conscience on that line. So I think McDavid needs a guy who is the defensive conscience on the line, like a, yep. and uh, will come back hard on the back check and he needs that one touch score. So I was looking at the lineup to see in the past, in McDavid's five years with the orders, who's done well with him, Bruce? Who's, who's, is there anyone on the orders who have actually, who's actually done well? And what we see is that in the, when that Drysdale, maroon mcdavid line was together, that line actually did well. And it stopped doing well when they got rid of Maroon, Bruce. Um, you know, it, it, um, it was, it's, it's an outflow of the Milan-Lucic decision. They had two players who replicated each other's skill in, in Maroon and Lucic, but one was tied down in Lucic and Maroon wasn't. And Maroon was clearly the better of the two players and they couldn't keep him because they'd given so much money to Lucic. At the same time, Dreisaitl is almost, when you get rid of Maroon, Dreisaitl's play in the last two years with McDavid has fallen off considerably. In the last two years, uh, McDavid and Dreisaitl together, 91 goals for, 80 goals against. So that's a 53% goals for percentage and a huge sample size of ice, 53% goals for percentage. Yeah, That is not nearly good enough to justify oh. playing. The opportunity cost is is, oh. uh, is terrible with that.
1: You need... 60. You'd need at they least need to 60%. Dominate. They need to they dominate. 21 totally. million bucks? You, you, yeah. You know, that's a they huge, that's a quarter percent. of your salary cap in the two players. They have to be yeah. outscoring and they have to be outscoring by a lot for the, the idea to keep them together to make any sense at all.
0: I, I think with Drysol and McDavid on their own lines, at the the amount of pay they're getting, you need 60% goals for. From the mcdavid line you need 60 percent goals for from the dry saddle line when you have that the orders will be a, a strong even strength team so they they even if you had that with them together that that wouldn't be good enough because you have them together and you need them to, to lead their own lines essentially so what we saw with dry saddle when he was with um nugent hopkins and yamamoto was a was a 77 percent goals for percentage 30 goals for nine goals against. Okay. Now, you're not going to get that right over a full season, but you might get 65% from that from the dynamite line. I think 65%, I think 60. 60, 60 to 65, 60 the very best lines in the NHL get between 60 and 70%. And um, so, somewhere in there, 60 would be good, obviously. Like, I'm, I'm just mm-hmm. getting greedy here, Bruce. You're right. uh, but, but they need to find wingers with for McDavid where he can also get to 60% with a couple wingers. So the one Mm -hmm. winger, so outside of that dry settle maroon McDavid combination, which for a number of reasons can't exist anymore and it's not going to happen again, there's one guy who who when teamed with McDavid Bruce on the Oilers got more than 60% in a substantial amount of ice time. This is not you know not a huge amount, 408 minutes even strength ice time over a number of seasons. And that name is Yesapulyarve. 24 goals. Four, 15 goals against, 61.5 goals, four percentage, Bruce, when Jesse Pugliarvi. So this is the guy that apparently didn't work out with McDavid. He doesn't have this. He's always getting in McDavid's way, apparently. Mm -hmm. And he he doesn't have the hockey IQ to play with McDavid. But he's at 61.5% with McDavid. And guess what? Let's look at Ryan Nugent Hopkins. He of the high hockey IQ uh, in the last two years playing with McDavid. He's at 52% goals for percentage, 23 goals for, 21% against, in the same amount of ice time. But the 200 hockey men will tell us, well, "Oh, yeah, let's put Mick, let's put Ryan Nugent Hopkins with uh, McDavid," but no, we we can't have Pulleya Yarvi there because he just doesn't have the hockey IQ. You know, the numbers do not support that, Bruce, in any way, in the least. And it's a and it's I'm going to say it's not accurate. And I'm going to say there's a narrative around this which is. Which hasn't, the real narrative, I don't think has ever come out. And I think that there's a, some bad feeling around Pugliarvi playing with McDavid and Dry, McDavid or Drysdale Because at that time when he was on the team, McDavid and Drysdale wanted to play with each other. They were dead set on playing with each other. And they, when Arvey played with the, either one of them, that wasn't going to happen because he was the right wing. He was, he was taking Drysdale's right-wing spot with McDavid. And those two star players at that time, they didn't want that to occur. They wanted to play with each other. And I think Arvey kind of got caught up in the meat grinder of their ambition to play together. And so that's my counter-narrative to what happened with Arvey. What do you think?
1: Well... Yeah, funny because this year they moved uh, Dry Settle onto the left wing to play with Cass, you know, on the right wing, and that worked out. Leon can play anywhere. That's true. So I'm surprised that they they didn't try that. But uh, uh, anyway, it it uh, it never happened, and there was uh, I mean, there was a couple of sort of outside smoke signals that maybe the player wasn't fitting in all that well. One the one that really grabbed my eye right when it happened was um, remember in. Uh, uh, when Las Vegas came into the league in 2017-18, and the Orders played their first ever game on, in Las Vegas on McDavid's 21st birthday. and uh, So we can peg that very accurately to uh, January 13th, 2018. And then they had a week off before their next game because uh, they got their mid-season break. And the team scattered to the – I think some of them went to the Caribbean, some of them went to Hawaii – And Yasser Poole spent his week off in Edmonton in January of uh, 2018. Remember he was playing street hockey with kids and there was all this sort of feel-good stuff about Yasser going out there. And at the time I remember thinking, how in the hell come none of the teammates sort of said, Yasser, come on with us to Hawaii and have a good time with us. And, you know, we we got everything else set, let's go. And it just, you know, like... We don't know what's going on inside there. It Just from an outsider's point of view, it seems strange that you had this, uh, you know, this teenage kid that's sort of on the outside looking in while his teammates are going off in different places and taking a mid-season break. And to me, that that was sort of a, just a distant early warning that something wasn't quite right there. And I have no inside knowledge and still don't. I just think that was – it just was a bad sign. So
0: and there – there's that, Bruce. But we, we've mm-hmm. also heard numerous co- comments. I mm-hmm. think hints, comments, direct comments, insinuations. And the McDavid and Drysdale really wanted to play together, have we not? Over the years, yeah. I oh, think yeah. we've heard. We've heard. It, I think it's been said directly after the fact. But I think I think you know you know Tippett's. T- all the coaches have talked about it. Everyone's kind of referred to it, and it's been. It's they mm-hmm. kind of beat around the bush on it a bit, but. I think it has. There's been like a hundred hints that they definitely wanted to play
1: together. Dave, Dave Tippett put the end of it to it, and I thought he made a definitive statement. And this was after they really struggled in December together, and he finally put them on the separate lines. And some reporter said, "How are you going to deal with Connor and Leon? They want to play together, and uh, you know they they like to play together." And said, and and Tippett said, Connor and Leon like winning, and who's going to gainsay that certainly not Connor or Leon and they didn't and that was kind of the end of the of the of the the one stacked line approach when they went as I call it vertically put the you know the the uh, you know one superstar on each of two lines and the orders fortunes basically turned at that point point. and it was just took a little tough love from the coach I think that was that was maybe tippett's biggest um, Obstacle slash accomplishment in 2019-20 was that rejigging of how uh, uh, how the Oilers' uh, uh, forwards are deployed?
0: So, um, pooley this time around, I think he's got, I'm, I'm saying there's a chance. First mm-hmm. of all, he'd have to sign here, right? right. So, um, we don't know if that's going to happen or not. But right. if he did, he, he did have that previous success there. There's also... Um, McDavid now needs wingers on his team, so he might be looking at Jesse Puljujarvi in a different light. Like the the whole the whole frame has changed. Where Drysdale has his line mates, it was it was a terrible mistake from for Tippett to move away from that line in the playoffs. Hopefully, he'll go back to the dynamite line next year because the some of those players are greater than than the parts, and the parts are pretty damn good. So McDavid's going to need some line mates here. This is the, the the fundamental issue they have to solve on their forward lines. Poliarvi comes in in his last year he wasn't right Bruce there, there you could see he was falling down he wasn't his stride wasn't right he didn't have balance we now know he needed hip surgery he had hip surgery he had a really good year in Finland in the in the preseason and the early games this year in Finland he's absolutely crushing it this is a player who looks a lot more ripe and ready than he did when he when he was first here and the situation has changed so I'm just I'd love to see this I'd love to see them give him mm-hmm ten games, you know, five, ten games. You can actually tell after about five games. It doesn't take long to see if players have chemistry. But if they can replicate Bruce, a 61% goals four percentage in their first 400 minutes together, would that be so bad? Would that be would that be classified as failure again? Because it, it's not failure. That's actually success. And um, if, if they can do that, that would be great. Now, the other line, mate, when we look at um, – other players who spent a lot of time with McDavid, um, Chason's kind of at the bottom of success with Mc with McDavid. Cassian didn't have great success either.
1: Um, way look, more minutes for Cassian. Yeah, if Chase. you look
0: at it objectively, yeah, a thousand minutes and just a fifty-three percent goals for percentage. Chason three hundred and seventy-one minutes, fifty percent. Now, of course, there's other players on the ice at the same time, but. You know, we're getting two players together, and I think it's it's a it's a stat I put a bit of weight in. Put it that way, when we when we look at the low lower time numbers, the smaller sample sizes with McDavid, right at the bottom are players like Archibald. Um, he had a fairly decent uh, sh- goal share, but the the shot share when when Archibald was on the ice with McDavid is atrocious. It's forty percent, <sighs> and uh, and it, James Neal is just fifty percent. And they had a terrible goals percentage when Neil's on the ice, just forty-two percent score. So, so I don't, I'm not sold on either Archibald or Neil in the end. Uh, but there's one player in a very, very small sample size of just fifty minutes. Uh, they they scored six goals, gave up just two, and had a, had a had a really good shot share, of fifty-nine percent. Yolcum Nygaard, Bruce, and. Nygaard um, has the speed to catch up with McDavid, but the I just think, you know, and I didn't when I it didn't really work out with Nygaard on on the on that line. But I think that it might it's worth a try. And I would say Nygaard Pulleyarvey and McDavid. I'd love to see that line. That would be my first choice if they don't bring in anyone else. That's my first choice heading into the season. Nygaard is a very defensively responsible player, and I think you have Pulleyarvey and McDavid. Um, doing the offense and Nygaard kind of filling in and you just say, here's your role, buddy. You're going to play in the top line, but you're going to be the the high man. Except when it's time to go to the net, you'll dart into the net when you have to. But otherwise you're, you're first man back on defense. You're, you're the back checker and he has the speed to do that. And the defensive smarts Pulley Arvey also, I think is a defensively responsible player. I don't, I don't know if anyone says he isn't, but that's how I've always seen him is he tries to take care of things in the defensive end. So, what do you think of that line?
1: Oh, well, I certainly don't mind the the concept of of Negard. I think you know he has sort of the the, the pieces you like to see. Uh, for one thing, that speed, uh, which is um, uh, as Bill James pointed out in baseball, but it's true in many sports that speed is a weapon both offensively and defensively. Yeah. Uh, you you know you use it to close down the other guy on the puck, no matter which zone that puck is or what direction it might be headed at the time. Uh, and he has uh, a history that he's something of a scorer. You know, he was second in the Swedish League in goals this last year there. This is a guy who can put the puck in the net. We didn't see enough of it. Unfortunately, he only played 33 games before he got hurt. I thought he was coming on really nicely in January. And then he got hit by that point shot and broke his hand and his season was over. And that was... That was just when he was starting to play his best hockey, I think, and start you know, starting on a nightly basis I was starting to notice him positively, making an impact, just being, you know, just around the puck a lot and making life miserable for the other team with the uh, with the tenacity of his of his checking. So I, I I like him in theory, you know, whether he's, you know, got the got the quality of play to survive in the top six role in the National Hockey League against the caliber of players. That um, uh, he'd be facing, who knows? And this is, this is where you know you look at the, at the defensive stats of a guy like him or, or Gaitan Haas uh, or even Alex Gason for that matter, and say, well, look, their defensive stats are far, far superior to the guys in the top six, but they're not they're definitely playing a lower caliber of, of opponent as well. So it's, it's kind of apples and oranges even when you're comparing the same yeah. types of stats. So I mean but I think it's certainly worth a look, and I you know Nigard like he's now that he's got that ear under his belt, he's going to have some time playing in Sweden to start the season to sort of get up to speed uh that's that's an option that's certainly well worth considering for uh, for Dave tippett I mean, we do know we've seen we had two years of watching Zach Cassian playing the wing on uh, mcdavid's line and and uh uh four words that don't belong together in the same sentence are Zach Cassian and defensive conscience you know he's not the guy that's going to look after the back checking and you know and clean up the messes behind uh, other offensive stars that's just not who he is so I mean maybe he's on one wing but if he is the other winger better be damn strong on the defensive side of the puck
0: I think you want Cassian there for like 10 games a year with McDavid, you know, when you're playing a big physical team or when, you know, you need to send that message and shifts. He, he should be like the Semenko role with Gretzky, you know, you, occasionally you would play there. The thing I like about Nigard Bruce, is how he bites, digs in on the forecheck. Mm. And I would compare him with Andreas Athanasiou, who, who doesn't ha- didn't have that aspect in his game. Very similar players, and they're both really f- super fast in that regard. But, you know, Negard's willingness to battle and to get in there and fight for the puck w- was vastly outseeded Athanasiu, which is my biggest concern about Athanasiu, was he, l- he seemed to lack that capacity in his game. Like, just get in there and fight, man. Like, mm-hmm. you're so fast and, you you know, you're not small. And I, I didn't see that. I do think Athanasiu and NS are also, Tyler Ennis, if he comes back, are candidates if they come back to play with McDavid. So... So in terms of internal candidates, that's how I would rank them. You know, if Pulley comes back, he'd be number one, and then Niegard number two, NS three, and FNCO four. So there's four guys, and I, and I don't think all of them will be back, will be on the orders um, this year. But just based on their records in the past and and the qualities that they have as players, they would be my picks to be the the guys you're going to try. I do think they they will probably though acquire a winger to play with McDavid. So it would be maybe uh knee guard and McDavid and a shooter or it will be Puljarvi and McDavid and a guy who goes hard to the net. Um so so that's what we what we that's that's what my bet will be is that it will be one of those guys will be the best bet and then um uh, a, a winger they acquired, but I'm going to dig into that in the future. I mean, look at what Pittsburgh did. They they bought in Zucker and um, who else did they bring in this year? They brought in Jason Zucker and another winger, didn't they? I just have to. I'll Google that. Um, Bruce, let's talk a let's talk a little bit about Darcy Kemper. Sure. What do you think he's he's apparently on the market? And um, what price? What do you think about? how hard the order should go after him and what price would you personally be comfortable paying for Darcy Kemper?
1: Uh, Yeah, there's rumors that Arizona might be in full uh, fire sale mode. You know, they just got hammered with a ruling by the NHL uh, for uh, testing players outside of the regulations of the draft combine. And the NHL came down super hard. On wow. Arizona, took away their second round draft pick from this year and the first round draft pick from next year. And they'd already traded uh, a number of draft picks in the top three rounds uh, in the Taylor Holland trade, for example. They, they uh, traded away this year's first rounder. And so, as I understand it, at this point, they have zero picks in the first three rounds in either of the next two drafts. And they have a lot of in fact, Cap Friendly currently lists Arizona Coyotes number one for payroll in the, in the league. And it just astonishes me. You know, the NHL team that's supposed to be bare-bones budget and stuff, number one? Like what the hell is going on there? And so the rumor is that they may be putting up uh, uh, a lot of different guys from their their team might be available. Uh, and that includes, you know, a number of veteran defensemen up to and possibly including Oliver ekman Larson, but also guys like uh, Alex Galagoski and uh, uh, Jason Demers, uh, you know, players, players of that ilk. Uh, and in goal, I mean, I've, I've been looking at this guy, Antti Ranta, for a while, thinking he'd be a real nice get for the Oilers. But if Kemper's out there, they just signed him, well, in, in the fall, they signed him to a two-year extension that kicks in next season. million per, so two years left to 4.5, basically identical to Koskinen. Uh, So he would be a nice get, and if they're doing the fire sale thing, uh, you know, let's kick the tires and find out. But my guess is that what Arizona is looking for is exactly what Edmonton doesn't have, which is draft picks, because their their cupboard has been vacated. I think if they're trading these guys, you'll see them getting... Uh, prospects and especially picks back for them first second third round picks to replace the ones they don't have right now and Evanton of course has already cleared the deck of uh, the next two second round picks uh, one of their next two third round picks one of their next two fourth round picks so they don't have a lot of currency of the of the exact um, uh, denomination that the, the coyotes are apt to be looking for so they're as much as Kemper might be a match for Edmonton, I'm not sure what you offer Arizona. That's a that's a fair exchange that Edmonton has, you know, uh, uh, a surfeit of that they can you know trade from strength. It, it,
0: well, well, what about the 14th overall pick this year?
1: Yeah, for 30-year-old goalie. Yeah, that, I mean that that would be a bold move in the words of uh, Craig McTavish.
0: We like the uh, Rollison trade, right? Dwayne Rollison, uh, first-round
1: pick. Yep, somewhat. When they traded Roley, for Rowley, they had a, uh, they had um, the three uh, 880 save percentage goalies that were suing that uh, 2005-06 team. Remember, they had uh, Conklin, Markinen and Morrison, and they were all uh, uh, Huey, Dewey, and Louie, I used to call them. <laughs> and time and again, you'd go to a game and and the Oilers are out to shoot the other guys 36-25 and lose 4-3, you know, that kind of thing. And and finally, they said, we got to get a goalie or this team's going nowhere. <clears throat> Whereas Edmonton right now, they have a goalie. is a good goalie. He's not a great goalie, but he's a good goalie. And uh, so to go out and get a Kemper, you know, now you've got $9 million invested in your goaltending. I think that's sort of your high end that you possibly want to spend on that position. I'd be willing to spend that, but I'm not sure I'd be willing to spend that plus the first-round pick because the Oilers have needs at uh, other positions, especially skilled forwards. That, uh, that I mean, then the other option might be use that pick to pick in a young goalie that's going to be around for 10 years. Askarov specifically.
0: Yeah, NHL scouts not particularly good at identifying goalie talent in drafts. Bruce, I'm, I'm, I'm. I'm impacted by the rounders
1: is pretty, pretty impressive. Most of them worked out or a lot of them worked out for sure. The real high end guys, they tend to separate, but
0: all right. Maybe, maybe it would be okay. Um, So um, my concern about Kemper paying a price for Kemper is, is that there's a lot of goalies on the market. Mm-hmm. And and again, you what you might you know, he's had a couple of good years, but that's the hour. He he's been very good. But um, you know, there's um anti Ranta who played uh thirty-three games this year. Mm-hmm. He had a nine twenty one save percentage, same team. Kemper played twenty nine games, nine twenty eight. Now right. Ranta, he's gonna come a lot cheaper than um probably he, than in terms of a trade than Kemper. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, be, I'd be thinking, why, why don't I give up a third or a fourth round pick for Anti Ranta? And um, you know, he, he's got one year left on a deal that pays him four million. Is he going to be that much weaker than than Kemper? You know, Kemper's a better bet, that's for sure. But is Ranta? You know, and you have Koskinen, like you're saying. So, so that's the kind of thinking that might come into play. And there's all right. kinds of there's 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 the whole. Vegas situation with Flurry and Robin Leonard. Now the owners probably can't afford either of those guys, but there's other goalies. Every time uh, Thatcher Demko makes a save, twenty five thousand dollars comes off up uh, comes off of Jacob Markstrom's contract in Vancouver. <laughs> now again the owners probably can't afford him, but there's there's um uh, there's Thomas Grice. There's Alex Georgiev in New York, a young goalie. There's Elvis Merzlikens in Columbus. There's Anton Huboden in Dallas. There is Jake Allen, who Montreal just acquired maybe to flip. There is Matt Murray, who the Oilers are apparently in on, who who's coming off a really kind of rancid season but might get paid. But, you know, he's got two Stanley Cups and some good seasons behind him, and he's still a young goalie. He's only 26. Um, there's lots of options, and some of them – aren't going to cost you a first round draft pick. So man, that's a pretty pricey when there's so many other options. And, and as you say, the need isn't is there, but it's not, it's not a kick in the, fa- you know, you're not getting kicked in the gut right now. You're just kind of getting slapped in the face. So you don't need to go um, full out to fill this need. I don't think so. I Maybe you're right. Maybe that first, Oh, first pick for Kemper doesn't make a ton of sense right now.
1: Well, not when you're you know you're down four draft picks in the next two years. You do have both your first rounders, but you need to keep them. You know, because you got nothing behind them.
0: Yeah, I I think that you're you're probably right about that, Bruce.
1: Um, I mean Kemper. I mean he's uh, I, I've been watching him with interest for a long time because he was uh, Red Deer Rebels goalie in uh, 2010-11. Ryan Nugent Hopkins draft year, and I went to a few Rebels games that year, and he played, I think, all but one of the games, um, and uh, he, uh, he he was a big man on that team, and it just took him forever in the NHL. Like, he he, he made it uh, in 12, 13. He made it uh, and played a few games, Then for years, he was like a 20 to 30 game a year guy, a solid backup, and then all of a sudden, the last three years nine twenty 920, nine twenty five nine twenty eight I mean that's high end stuff, and this year Arizona the day he got hurt was the day that Arizona's playoff hopes started to unravel frankly, and he he was out a couple months and both him and Ranta really that's the concern is can are they are they hundred percent physically so
0: Brian Lawton was saying that he he thinks that the their numbers. Are actually not indicative of a strong defense in Arizona, but of superlative goaltending, like just mm-hmm. absolutely outstanding goaltending. And I think he's going off sport logique mm-hmm. data. Maybe I'm not exactly sure where he gets his his data from, but um, he's got some probably insider statistical information that indicates that to him. So that's encouraging uh, to hear. Bruce, there's a lot of young defensemen in these Stanley Cup playoffs who are sparkling. Top of the list, Quinn Hughes, there's Kale McCarr, there Miro Heskinen might be top of the list, actually. There's a couple guys. Now, these are all super high draft picks. Um, similar defensemen in that there's smaller players, absolutely brilliantly skilled players. Uh, obviously, would be a delight if the Oilers had any, any one of those guys, but they do not. But do the Oilers have, would you say that the Oilers have, in terms of highly mobile puck-moving defensemen on the way up? Is it are we do, are, are we hopeless or is there hope that we're gonna get some relief in this regard as well? And moving on from our you know, f- none of the except for nurse, none of the top defensemen on the oilers are particularly fast. I would say Clefbaum's an above average NHL skater. I know some people rate his skating higher than that. I do not. I think he's above mm-hmm. average. Larson's below average. Ethan Bear, if he's average, um maybe. Yes. Larson, below, and Nurse. Nurse is fast, I'd
1: somewhat say nurse agile. Is above average.
0: Yeah, Nurse is definitely above average. Cleftbone, arguably above average. Size. But they're for a top four. There's no. Yeah. They're not. It's it's a below average overall for for mm-hmm. s- skating. So what about what what do you see?
1: Well, what I see right at this moment, I'm looking at the top of the NHL playoff scoring uh, roles for defensemen. And here we have Miro Haskin in 19 points. Quinn Hughes, 16. Wow. Shea Theodore, 15. Kale McCarr, 15. John Klingberg, 10. Samuel Girard, 10. All top six defensemen are all in the Western Conference. So these are guys that the Oilers specifically are going to have to deal with, most of them for years to come. I think Klingberg's like 27, 28. The other guys are all 25 and younger, and all but uh, Shea Theodore are 22 and younger. Uh, I mean, the other night, Cale McCarr broke, uh, uh, I think it was Al McGuinness's 1984 record for points in a in a playoff by a, a de- rookie defenseman. And the next night, Quinn Hughes broke Kale McCarr's record. And we're, we're going to see, I think, well, depending on who wins the game seven today, which one of those guys is uh, going to be the new standard bearer. But holy moly, I mean, they're piling up all these guys a point a game. And very dynamic, exciting players to watch. And it really kind of adds a dimension to the game that the Oilers just don't have. And, you know, they don't have anybody resembling a point of game uh, close to it, defenseman. Uh, in the system, you've got to think uh, Evan Bouchard has a, uh, a well developed offensive game, but he doesn't have the wheels that, say, Amiro Heskinen has got. Uh, on the other hand, Philip. Uh, Broberg has got the raw tools, but you don't know if he's got the uh, offensive savvy that he's going to be able to bring those tools. I was joking with Low Tide the other day. We were talking about the same topic on my Wednesday radio hit, and I was joking that they should send the, those two guys off to the island to Doctor Moral, <laughs> kind of vivisect them together and come back with one guy with the with the with the with the legs of. Uh, of Broberg and the, you know, and, the, and the upper body of Bouchard. and then, <laughs> then you have maybe someone who can compete with the uh, Miro Eskin and Kale McCars of the world. My goodness, <sighs> it's, a, it's, it, it's an aching need, and, and ever more so in the Western Conference, where it seems like the contenders all have uh, high end, young, emerging defense uh, superstars.
0: Jonathan Wills did a couple of good posts on this at The Athletic where he looked at both uh, Broberg and Bouchard in detail at mm-hmm. their numbers. And, tr- you know, can he, and his question was, can they be a number one defenseman? Right. He was very bullish on Bouchard's numbers mm-hmm. uh, from his first AHL season. And with Broberg, he said you can't tell because the Swedish right. scoring numbers are so all over the place that um, just because he didn't put up a ton of numbers isn't that indicative of anything, but the fact that he actually played a, a lot of minutes as an 18-year-old in the Swedish League is indicative of a player who's got a chance yep. to uh, become a number one defenseman in the NHL. couple of really good bets there, Bruce. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've both watched Bouchard a lot, and mm-hmm. I am he. he's more of the Al McInnes school of offensive defensemen. I, well, I, that's the highest end of that, as compared to the Paul Coffey end. He's not that fast a skater, right. But he really can fire the puck. He can really pass the puck. Mm -hmm. He's a very smart offensive hockey player. And and I really hope he's on the Edmonton Oilers this year. I I know that there's some people, close observers of the Bakersfield team, who don't think he's ready. I I disagree with that. I think that, yeah, you're going to give up something on defense, but he's not going to be asked to play in the top four on defense on the Oilers. He's going to be a bottom-pairing defenseman, working his way into the lineup, and... Maybe on the top power play though, and I think he can. I think he's ready for that kind of role. The, the other player that I think, and this this bothers me, like in the playoffs, the best skating defenseman in the Oilers was on the bench. Caleb Jones, you know, who played three pro seasons by then, who is who's overripe, who's ready to go, wasn't even on the ice for the first couple games, and he, they chose instead, you know, Matt Benning and Chris Russell. And I like both those players, but I would have, in a second, inserted Caleb Jones over, over either of them in the lineup to start the playoffs. And I think it was a um, it was a mistake, frankly. The NHL game is fast and puck moving, and Jones can play that game much better than Chris Russell or or Matt Benning can. And finally, he got in there uh, after Adam Larson got hurt, and he looked really good in his last two games. He should have been there from the start, and he should be there. The Oilers. You know, this is the whole thing about moving out one of the top defensemen. Mm-hmm. There's a feeling that maybe I think within the organization, even they're starting to realize maybe, maybe Jones is ready and we can move out one of these top guys and put Caleb Jones in there, in his place, get a get at least as good a player and a more agile player, a faster player. And I, I'm excited to see that happen, actually. The more I'm watching these playoffs, the more I think it needs to happen. They need to get better skating. In their top four, and maybe it'll be maybe it'll be as Brian Lawton has said, maybe it'll be two guys moving out, and they'll move in two guys who can really skate. Mm-hmm. Maybe it'll be Jones and let's say a Tyson Berry in the top four. So I think that there are, there is reason to hope um, in the Oilers system that they're going to get substantially faster on defense, and that could happen fairly soon. If you get if you get Jones, a UFA. Uh, and uh, Bouchard moves into that lineup, suddenly the puck moving has improved considerably.
1: Oh, that's for sure. That's a lot of turnover, but I mean, these Jones is, you know, he's within the team already. Yes. Uh, Bouchard's within the organization already, but uh, Jones, you know, he really made the team in the last couple months of the regular season, and with all hands on deck in the playoffs, he had to wait his turn, but he was really good in games three and four, and, and uh Evanton absolutely dominated uh, possession when he was on the ice. Like, I think it was 19 shots to three or something when he was out there. Yeah. Anyway, it was, it was um, uh, uh, he showed he was ready in that brief cameo in those two playoff games. So, anyways, uh, just as last year, they had to bite the bullet and uh, move on from Andrew Sekre, uh to make room for Ethan Bear, as it turned out. Uh, they're going to have to make some kind of similar move this year. And I, you know, uh, in a perfect world, I think most people agree that the, the guy to move on from would be Chris Russell. And that maybe, you know, they can uh, uh, they can find a trade. I mean, maybe Arizona, if they clear out all those high-priced defenders we were talking about earlier, you know, they'd be happy to take a $4 million defender that they only have to pay $1.5 in real money to. That would be, you know, that would be a, a good acquisition for them. That's that's the kind of fit Edmonton needs to look for. I don't suppose we'd get anti-Ranta for Russell, but it would be nice to think. But anyway, they've got, uh, uh, they've got to make space for these young guys. They need to improve their puck moving. And I think, you know, Bear was a good first step, but there needs to be more steps.
0: What do you think of Ekman Larsson, Bruce? He's got...
1: Seven years left at $8.25 million.
0: I just think, no, like I'm not, I've seen a lot of him. I've seen a lot of Arizona and he doesn't strike. He's not in the same class of puck mover as these young defensemen, these electric young defensemen. I don't think he's a vast improvement over Oscar Kleffbaum. I think he's a better defenseman than Oscar Kleffbaum probably, but at that price, I'm just not interested at all. Uh what about you?
1: Well, that's his 29 to 35 year old seasons I believe and and that's um you know you know you get into diminishing returns and I mean sometimes if these good skating guys can more or less play forever I mean if you're getting Nick Lidstrom's 29 to 35 year old seasons you'd be fine with it. I I'm like to me he's a guy that's uh kind of taken a step back these last couple of years and uh, you know I think the sort of constant losing in Arizona has maybe gotten to him the same way we've seen some guys in Edmonton sort of become a little bit dispirited and maybe a change of scenery and a new situation uh, would uh, change things up on the other hand he just signed an eight year contract in Arizona and maybe he's just happy being you know a good hockey player in 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 a nice environment and you know, uh, who knows what what, uh, what makes the motor go, uh, you know. Uh, from outside, I've been an admirer of the player for a long time, but looking forward, seven years at that ticket? Oh boy, you can't get that one wrong.
0: I'm just, just going to look up here. I have uh, right in front of me, defenseman scoring.
1: When Nashville traded out to get, bring in a, a number of years of uh, Peach. PK Suban at $9 million a year, and they wound up regretting that deal after uh, much less time than remained on that contract.
0: Yeah, I'm just trying to figure out Ekman Larson's uh, even strength scoring this year. Or mm-hmm. ranked in my computer is very slow right, right now. Here we go. Did I just find it? Ekman Larson. He ranked um, 56th in the NHL for even strength scoring per 60, 1.1 points per game, points per 60, I should say. Right. Darnell nurse by that same standard ranked 42nd mm-hmm. at 1.2 uh points per game. So that doesn't scream out D-Man who should earn eight million dollars a year. Just like our Darnell nurse doesn't, you know, even with with all he brings, doesn't scream out eight million dollar a year defender to me either. Right. Um, he's. I think they can do. I, I, it's just too much money, Bruce. Like for that cap and I actually don't think the owners would be considering it at all.
1: Well, they just so, haven't got the room, David. I mean, yeah. I guess if you put him and uh, Caleb Jones together, they would cost the same money as your pairing of, say, Nurse and, and Larson would. But um, uh, you're really hamstringing yourself with a uh, big contract like that, especially like I say, seven years to go. And we've seen the Oilers make too many mistakes on on long-term big-money contracts in, in the past. I, for one, am pretty wary of them.
0: Yeah. Uh, Bruce, let's look at, finally, Oilers procurement. And you did a little comparison to Tampa Bay. Tampa Bay seems to have a real knack at finding players in the later rounds of the draft, finding players um, in... Uh, free agency, especially young players, unsigned juniors and and such. Um, And the owners, not so much. Not so much.
1: Yeah, I watched quite a bit of the Tampa series, uh, both against Columbus and Boston. And those are two pretty tough teams that they beat, and they polished them both off in five games. And the more I watched Tampa, the more I thought, holy moly, have they ever done a good job putting this team together? And uh, they did a smart job last year, not panicking after the playoff collapse of uh, of 2019, and they kept most of the core pieces together. And I just looked at how did they procure the players. How does that compare to how Edmonton did? And I wrote a post about that. And you know Tampa, they're they're coming in away from the same place that the Oilers did. Uh, a little bit earlier, but they were the dregs of the league around 2008. In fact, they had the first overall draft pick that year, and they used it on Steven Stamkos. And the next year, they had the second overall pick, and they used it on Victor Hedman. And that was, you know, that's kind of been their their axis of power ever since—the great forward, the great defenseman. And of course, Stamkos—we haven't even seen him in the playoffs. I'm not sure we will see him in the playoffs. But the team is so deep that they're still a great team without that guy. And otherwise, their first-round picks, you know, from 2010 on, which is when Steve Eisenman came in with his assistant, Julien Brisebois, who's now the full-time GM in in Tampa. So they've had a consistent management team for 10 years. And they only have one more first-round pick uh, from that time that's on their team, Andre Vasilevsky, the superstar goalie. You know, they targeted a goalie in 2012. They targeted the right goalie. Problem solved. And now they've got their goalie going forward. Uh, But where they've aced it, absolutely aced it, is uh, uh, on the second day of the draft, the Saturday when they do the rounds two through seven, and they got their forward ranks. uh, Just uh, great depth, uh, all lines of the team, forwards, dating back to Alex Killorn, drafted in 2007, who's still a very polished two-way, you know, middle six kind of player, great penalty killer. Uh, they got superstar Nikita Kucherov, 58th overall. They got superstar Braden Point, 79th overall. They got uh, uh, Selkie Cand- Trophy, future Sel- oh, Selkie Trophy winner, possibly Anthony Cirelli, 72nd overall. Killorn, 77th overall. Uh, grinding depth forward Cedric Paquette, 101st overall. And here's my favorite, Andre Palat, the guy that's been filling the net with huge goals for Tampa in the playoffs, 208th overall in 2011. And then outside of that, they found on the scrap heap of guys that were never drafted, that came up through the junior ranks and didn't even get drafted, Tyler Johnson and Yanni Gord. Who both went on to become 60-point players in the NHL for Tampa Bay Lightning that they just found and signed, no acquisition cost at all. And you compare that, yeah, you compare that to what the Oilers have, and what you see with the Oilers is top-heavy. Of course, they've had uh, in the last 13 years 11 picks in the top 10, so you would expect them to have a lot of high-end talent for not first overalls, of course. And so you've got. Uh, Nugent Hopkins, McDavid, Dreisaitl, Nurse, klefbom all first-round draft choices. And, you know, that is the core of the team. And you can look at that and say, well, that's great scouting on behalf of the Oilers. You can say, well, geez, they had those high draft picks, you know. They, can, they should have some good players, and they do. And when you look past that, I mean, Kyler Yamamoto is the other first-rounder that's uh, currently making a mark on the team. And he's a good player, and he could become a core player. It's a little too early to call him that. Rounds two through seven, all they've gotten in all these years, well, until this year, they had only, only Jujar Kara, right? Who is, you know, on his best day, he's Cedric Paquette, right? Yeah. And and then this year, finally, they added a couple of guys that they, you know, when you're talking about day two of the draft, you're talking about typically three to five-year projects. You're not talking about guys that are going to step in and make the team. You're going to have to... Send him back a couple of years. You're going to develop him in your farm team. This year, finally, uh, a guy we were just talking about, Caleb Jones, and, of course, Ethan Bear, that were mid-round draft picks, that are finally, you know, players coming up from within the system. But in the meantime, you have Tampa that's had, you know, these same guys that have been kind of the core players on their team for years. And Edmonton, you know, they they keep going outside the organization and try and find the solution elsewhere and you know on the UFA market on on the trade market on the waiver wire uh, you name it but uh, uh, it hasn't uh, it hasn't borne much success and there's a lot of mistakes that have that have happened that have kind of crippled their uh, their salary cap structure as well so there's uh, uh, by way of comparison between Edmonton Oilers and Tampa Bay Lightning, there's basically none. I mean, the uh, only the only thing they have in common, and this is this, I'll take a little encouragement from this. Steve Eisenman learned at the uh, at the knee of Ken Holland, and Ken Holland, in his one year on the job here in Edmonton, has shown some of those same tendencies to want to grow and build his team from. Uh, from inside and to be patient with the players that he's got and to bring up the the players that he's got. But uh, one, of the, one of the things that really struck me about Tampa, by the way, is that uh, they haven't got a single expensive UFA on the team. Like they signed their own guys, like Stamkos, they signed him when he was, you know, his time was up, but they never brought in, they never went after a Tavares or, a, you know, let alone a Lucic or anything like when. They had money to spend. They spent it on their own players, and they've got this sort of internal competition for salaries. So yes, as right. went out and they they bought Benoit Puglia, and they bought Andre Sekra and they bought Milan Lucic. And you look at Edmonton's Faye. roster today. Those guys are gone, but guess what? They're still paying for them because they got buyouts. They got cap retention. They got, you know, and our guys that they got back that have bad contracts. You know, you can go through. There's a litany of things that uh, – that went wrong with the attempted shortcuts, and uh, it just it just lays bare the 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 shortcomings I think of Edmonton's management approach over the years uh, compared with uh, with uh, the consistent uh, approach of of Eisenman and Breeswa down there in Tampa Bay. I haven't got Brisbane. a cut to show for it yet, but I think that might be coming very soon. Yeah.
0: But Benoit Pouliot pushed the river. Bruce, he pushed the river. Uh, Tyson Berry um, had 1.2 points per game this year. Oliver ekman Larson one per sixty. Oliver ekman Larson 1.1 per sixty. If you're gonna go uh, get a defenseman on the market, Tyson Berry, uh, he's not going to be eight years or seven more years at eight million, and he outscored. Uh, Ekman Larson this year. Now you could say Eckman Larson is a better defensive defenseman than than Tyson Berry, and I I don't know I can't uh, I can't tell you about that. But if you want somebody who's going to put up points, Bear, Tyson Berry is a better bet than Eckman Larson. And um, I, I keep coming back to him. There's other There's other demon out there as well, and uh, we'll, we'll see what happens. But I, the Oilers have got that. To me, the more I think about it, Bruce, I think that's where you're going to want to spend some money this year. I don't think yeah. it, I think you make a compelling argument in that they have Koskinen, they just need someone to play with them. They don't need someone who earns dramatically more than him. At forward, they've got internal candidates in RV if they sign them, and and other guys. And you, I think you can bring in a, a, a smaller contract who's going to work well with McDavid. But if you're going to spend some money, um, you know, and I think they can move out some money on defense and bring in a good guy. So And as for the Tampa Oilers comparison, I just got increasingly depressed as you went through that litany. Uh, <laughs> and the
1: one,
0: the one thing that cheered me up was the name of Ethan Bear. Like, it makes such a mm-hmm. difference if yeah, you if hit on you one need, of these yeah. low-round picks. It's, it's so huge for your team. Mm-hmm. And if Jones works out, and he will work out, I think, if, if both those guys, it's, that will be so huge for the Oilers, Bruce, to have that happen on this team finally. And then if, and if some of these other guys, like if Tyler Benson can come through, or if or if uh, Ryan McLeod can, or or some of these guys, or Kirill Maximov can still come through, or Dmitry Samarukov, that is yeah. going to be huge for the order. So so, fingers crossed on on those well, young. That's what guys.
1: Tampa, that's what Tampa's been delivering, and they got so much internal comp uh, competition. They got a young good young forward like Matthew Joseph who's been pushed off the team because he's been beaten out by other guys. He wound up in the minors this year, and he's got, you know, another draft pick that's got like 100 NHL games under his belt. And in Edmonton, they, they're, they're, we just are not, we're not seeing that. So, and, uh, you know, here's a here's a depressing fact for you. Uh, if uh, Matt Benning was on the Tampa Bay Lightning, he'd be the third highest paid defenseman on the team. On the Oilers, he's the seventh highest-paid defenseman on the team. <laughs> I'm actually going to write more about this because I think there's an, there's enough here to, on the on sort of the cap management side of things to make for a, a second post in this comparison. Depressing as some of these details are, I think it, it's a, it's a it's an eye-opener and and worth pursuing. So that's what I'm working on today. But uh, it's. Uh, it's you shake know, your head territory for oil country.
0: I think the the other the, like the little bit of good news is is that under Shirelli, the the drafting and the development system got better. I think that's just undeniable. Um, there were some good. There were some decent drafts there. The one that brought uh, Bear and Jones, and certainly one of them, and Yamamoto was a good pick. And some of these other guys look like they're trending in the right direction. So uh, maybe. Maybe uh now the key is is Ken Holland building on that. You know, mm-hmm. did, has he brought in the right people around him to to bring in draft draft well and procure the right pro players. Now the the trade deadline, you know, with Athena and Mike Green coming in, you know in
1: Detroit, the same place that Archie Henderson came in from and uh, Colin himself came in from. Oh,
0: it's a little bit depressing, Bruce. And you know, Tyler Wright's draft record, um he had a tra- chance to draft Quinn Hughes in Detroit. They took um, Philip Zadina instead. So, Ooh. you know, Tyler Wright's draft record in Detroit doesn't inspire. I'm going to look in it. I I did a post on it last year. I'm going to there's another year that's gone by, mm-hmm. so we have that much more information. But wow. you know, the early returns aren't inspiring a whole ton of confidence. And I, I but I, I just want to look into it a little bit more deeply before I speak to that. But you know that that first trade deadline didn't really work out for the Oilers. They didn't identify players who they they paid a lot for. Athanasiu and he and he failed them in the playoffs. Um, so we'll see. We'll see, you, Bruce.
1: Yeah, well, that's where those four draft picks went. That they're you know they're down in the yeah next two drafts. It's in the, and and bringing in those guys. So you know they invested in them and they didn't get a lot out of them in, uh, in 2020.
0: So, <sighs> yeah. so. Maybe we'll see with that. We'll see what happens. It's, it's interesting. What's going to happen with it. The fantasy. I mean, if they don't re up him and they can't trade him, then they lose him for nothing. I, it's, you'd hope that they could trade him for a second round draft pick, but that's going to be for a team that's willing to pay $3 million to, to re up him at that price. Maybe there is a team out there that will do that. But I, I'm not sure that there is, Bruce. Let's leave it there, uh, unless you have something positive. Like anything, anything positive, <laughs> rather than anything uh, on that low note.
1: Well, like I say the, the my one positive I took away from that was that I, with their uh, current experienced management, that Edmonton may have turned a corner with those uh, uh, with the with their strategy towards young players. That said. Same manager traded four draft picks for, for immediate help, right? So he's kind of trying to balance and to compete now and for the future. He did not trade away any of the first rounders, so whereas Tampa, on a different stage of the cycle altogether, traded the two first rounders they had for a couple of useful role players because they want to win now. I mean, now obviously their window is is open, right? Now 2020. Yeah.
0: So. And, they, and over the years, they also traded for veteran D men. And they did mm-hmm. sign. They did sign one guy. What was his name? Uh, O'Callaghan? Was that it? Ryan. Oh,
1: Brian Callahan. Ryan Callahan. For, they traded for. They, oh, sorry. They traded Ryan Callahan. But they they brought in uh, by trade Ryan McDonough. He's the big shot uh, they acquired by trade. But they got three veteran veteran D men relatively dirt cheap as unrestricted free agents, Kevin Shattenkirk, Zach Bogosian and Luke Shen. And they've got like 2,000 games between them or something like that. They've been around, for seems like, forever. And they were all coming off of big contracts elsewhere, and Tampa got them on the rebound. I mean, uh, Shattenkirk was bought out. Zach Bogosian his contract was terminated. And they were looking for a soft landing place, and Tampa was very happy to accommodate them. No, oh, yeah. You know, so yeah, just some sharp man. I, like I don't think Oilers had a shot at those guys. I mean, let's be fair, but uh, but there's just some really sharp practices going on there, and I admire. I tip my hat to uh, Julian Breezeball. That guy really knows what he's doing.
0: Yeah, my point with Callahan was. They they did trade they earlier they moved on they him traded away
1: him. to get rid of his contract no but no.
0: earlier on in the cycle like you said they never brought in an expensive free agent now oh. they did trade for him and they signed him then I think for a huge contract right like I think mm-hmm. when he was a UFA or heading towards UFA so they did do that mm-hmm. with Callahan and and lived to regret it I think um, although he had one good playoff year with them but um, or a decent playoff run with them but he was a player who yeah. you know an oiler type signing. An Euler-type move was the Callahan move. So they did make some mistakes along the way, but... Uh, oh, yeah,
1: nobody's perfect. I mean, sure, you could look at a couple of their contracts that they've signed and say, that's a bit of an overpay for that player, but they got more cap room than Edmonton does, and uh, they're, uh, <laughs> they're they're in tight for, uh, you know, one in four chance of winning the cup, and I'd put their odds up <sighs> better than that.
0: They brought in Strawman. Like, they signed a free agent in Strawman, and that worked out, Right. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, um, what did they, they ever make? A,
1: but then they let them go, and they found cheaper alternatives. Did they ever
0: make a good trade with Montreal, though? Bringing in Sergachev for Duran, I mean, they just totally fleeced Montreal. What a disastrous trade! Hey, that, there's a there's a there's oh, an okay. Ups- and
1: there's my positive is that, that what uh, Steve Eisenman did with Duran is very similar to how Ken Holland just played pulled the Arby. To say, I got the cards, you know, you come to me and we'll work it out. And in that case, Duran had to come back to Tampa. He played a year, he played a good year, and then he, he became a tradable commodity. And Eisenman played his hand perfectly and got Montreal to bite on the, you know, young French-Canadian dynamics uh, offensive guy. And they got a huge return in Sergachev and a second-round pick. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I can see why they wouldn't want to trade pooley for a second-round pick. Like, what's the upside for us? I mean, uh, we can get a lot more. Like, there's a much more upside you coming back. (laughs) So, all right. Thanks, Bruce. Thanks for talking today.
1: No, thanks for listening, everyone.
0: And in the meantime, and in between times, this has been another edition of the Cult of Hockey podcast.